If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me, if you would, to Acts 18. We're continuing on in our series of messages, We Are Sent. Paul has left Athens. He's come south into Achaia, the province of Achaia, modern-day Greece, and he goes to the prominent city of Corinth. And um, as usual, he preaches the gospel, opposition rises up, and Paul is discouraged. But God comes alongside him and gives him a message, a reminder, that what Paul is doing, he's doing because God sent him to do it. The very same encouragement that God intends for you and me. To remember that you and I, like Paul, are sent by God himself to bring the gospel of good news to people who need to hear it. Here's how Luke recorded what happened in Acts 18, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Tadius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charge, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it'd be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names in your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. Then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul. And Gallio never, or Gallio showed no concern, whatever. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Centrea because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend some more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Father, thank you for this word. 
somehow it's a great encouragement to us to see that even the great apostle at times got discouraged. And the thing that encouraged him on was being reminded that you had sent him and he was not alone. The very same encouragement you want for us who today at times are called to bring forth a message that isn't always popular but a message that you want delivered that is still saving people who believe. So Lord, thank you for how you use Paul and for the encouragement of knowing we, like him, are sent. We thank you, God, for that encouragement. Help us now, God, to learn as we open your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I used to work in industry I had a territory that went from St. Louis in the west all the way to the Atlantic Ocean and from Boston all the way to New Orleans I was on the road a lot my job was to go and set up distribution hubs establish warehousing hire drivers buy trucks set up delivery routes my job also at times involved handling problems such as the one we had in Chicago I remember a time when my boss called me in. He said, Larry, I'm sending you to Chicago, and uh, we have a problem there. We have a driver stealing supplies, but we don't know which one it is. I want you to go there, find out who it is, eliminate him, and replace him. Now, people always love it locally when people from corporate show up. They know it's always for a really good cause that they're there. And everyone in that office knew it, but they didn't know exactly why I was there. To make a long story short, I finally found out who was doing it. I confronted him, and it did not go well. It rarely does. No one who's ever had to go deliver a message that nobody wants ever likes doing it. It's not fun to tell people they've been caught. It's not fun sometimes to have to deliver a message they don't want to hear. Sometimes they get accusative, sometimes they rebel, sometimes they get angry, sometimes they slander, sometimes they do a lot of things. I didn't like going to do that part of my job, but one thing that helped me, I still remember, was remembering that this was something that needed to be done, that I was doing the right thing, and that I had been sent specifically for that purpose. People, that's the encouragement that God gave Paul when he came to the city of Corinth. God reminded Paul that he was sent by God to do this and that he would be with him. In fact, one night, verse 9, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. Corinth was a tough place to do ministry. It was a very prosperous, large, and very immoral city. You see, in Paul's day, it was so widely known for its immorality that when people were were seen living a very hedonistic or very immoral life, they would often say of them, you've been Corinthianized, or you're living a Corinthian life. It was not an easy place. The city and temple sat on a high plateau, 886 feet above the valley below. It was an impregnable place. 
And there was a temple on the top of that plateau, a temple to their goddess Aphrodite. To give you an idea of what went on there, they employed a thousand temple prostitutes to help them carry out their worship. I'll leave it at that without going into any more detail. The city was prosperous because it was between two ports and it was also on a major trade route. But it was a city that was not open to the gospel. Paul arrives there alone and apparently out of money. And so he connects with two fellow Jews, Aquila and Priscilla, who were tent makers. That was also Paul's trade. And together they start working, earning some income to support themselves. Priscilla and Aquila were there in Corinth because they had been chased out of Rome. Emperor Claudius had made an edict in 49 AD that all the Jews had to leave Rome. So they fled across the empire and Priscilla and Aquila ended up in Corinth. Aquila and Priscilla were not only helpful to Paul in Corinth, but later this couple is going to be instrumental in helping to lead the church at Ephesus. And later on, after the death of Emperor Claudius, they are going to return to Rome and help lead the church there. Silas and Timothy finally arrive, bringing good reports of the good things that are happening with the believers in Thessalonica and Berea. But they also bring with them a financial gift from an offering that was taken by the church at Philippi. And when that offering arrived, Paul realized that he no longer had to give all of his time over to making tents. Now he had the support base to, as Luke said, exclusively give himself to preaching the gospel. People need to understand when they and churches give to the support of the spread of the gospel, they're helping the gospel to spread in ways they couldn't possibly imagine. Church at Philippi was thanked many, many times by Paul for their constant support. Things in Corinth went as usual, the way they had gone at Philippi and at Thessalonica and Berea. Paul starts out, he's preaching, there's an initial response, and then sure enough, the opposition comes. And that's exactly what happened in verse 5. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So he leaves and he goes next door to the house of a guy named Titius Justice. And in Titius's house is Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his family, along with a lot of other Corinthian people who had been listening to Paul preach at the synagogue next door. And so they go in there and they share some more and these people believe and they get baptized and the church at Corinth is born in the house of Titius Justice. But Paul realized the pattern that had been developing in Philippi, in Thessalonica, in Berea. Every time there's a little forward motion of the gospel, he gets chased out of town. In fact, in each of those places, by night, his disciples are whisking him out to get him away. And so Paul's probably wondering, wow, this is great what's happening here at Titius Justice's house, but when's the shoe going to fall? And it always, always happened at night, where his followers came, got him, and got him out of the city before it was too late. But on this night, 
It wouldn't be his followers coming to get him out. It would be God coming to tell him to stay. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you. No one's going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. Paul was reminded that what he was doing was needed. What he was doing was the right thing. But most of all, God said, what you're doing, you're doing because I sent you there. And I'm with you. So don't be afraid. People, you and I are sent with the same message, the message of the gospel. Sent with the same message by the same God for the same purpose. To the relationships and the people and the opportunities God's going to create for us, we are sent by God himself. And that's why Luke reminds us here in, in Acts 18 that God himself has sent us to proclaim the gospel to all people. What difference does it make to know that we are sent? Well, like Paul, it made a difference because it kept him strong even in the face of opposition. And when he knew he was sent, it kept him focused on doing the will of God no matter what. When we know we are sent by God to proclaim the gospel, it keeps us strong even in the face of opposition. One night, verse 9, the Lord appeared to Paul in a vision or spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in the city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half teaching them the word of the Lord, the word of God. While Gallio was pro-council of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man they charge is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, if you Jews were making a complaint, about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. Charles Marsh wrote a book six, seven years ago called Welcoming Justice. And in that book, he told about one of the most intimate times in the life of Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. At a time when he was worn out, when he was constantly threatened, and when he was discouraged. He wrote it like this. In January 1956, Martin Luther King Jr. returned home around midnight after a long day of organizational meetings. His wife and young daughter were already in bed, and King was eager to join them, but a threatening call, the kind of call he was getting as many as 30 or 40 times a day, interrupted his attempt to get some much-needed rest. When he tried to go back to bed, he could not shake the menacing voice that kept repeating the hateful words in his head. King got up, made a pot of coffee, sat down on his kitchen table, and with his head buried in his hands, he cried out to God. And there in his kitchen in the middle of the night, when he had come to the end of his strength, King met the living Christ in an experience that he said would carry him through the rest of his life. I heard the voice of Jesus saying, still to fight on, he later said. He promised never to leave me. He promised never to leave me alone.
Charles Marsh went on to write, In the stillness of the Alabama night, the voice of Jesus proved more convincing than the threatening voice of an anonymous caller. The voice of Jesus gave him the courage to press on through the tumultuous year of 1956 to the victorious end of the Montgomery bus boycott. More than that, it gave him a vision for ministry that he had been sent to do that would stay with him for the rest of his life. People, when you know God has sent you to do something, it changes the way you do it. It allows you to carry on when other people would quit because you know God is in it and you know you're not alone. That was the reality that God gave to Paul in the face of his opposition. You see, it wasn't long before Paul came under attack. Verse 12, while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. And you read that and say, well, wait a minute. I thought God had just told him in the vision, no one's going to attack you and harm you. And yet here he is under attack. And you go back and read it carefully. This is very important. No one is going to attack and harm you. God didn't say only no one's going to attack you. He said no one's going to attack and harm you. And that's exactly what happened. He was attacked, but he wasn't harmed. In fact, Paul is dragged into court on charges of breaking Roman law by preaching the gospel. What they were accusing Paul of was serious. In the Latin, it was the religio illicita. It was saying you are preaching an illicit religion against Roman law. That was the charge, punishable by imprisonment or worse. Look at verse 14, just as Paul was about to speak. You see, Paul heard this before. He's probably thinking, here it comes again. Every time I preach the gospel, there's a little revival, people get saved, and then I'm on trial again for my life. I'm probably going to get whipped, probably going to get bitten, beaten, probably thrown in prison or worse. i got to speak up and say something. But before he could say a word, God intervenes and basically tells Paul, zip it. You don't need to say anything. I got this. And before Paul can get a word out of his mouth, Gallio, the proconsul, the judge, who's ahead of the whole province of Achaia in adjudications, speaks up first. And he tells these people, if you Jews were making a complaint about misdemeanors or serious crimes, it'd be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names in your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. He threw it out of court. Now Luke records this for two very important reasons. First, God is showing Paul and all of us he means what he says. You may be attacked, but no harm is going to come to you. Now, Paul is going to remember this later on, near the end of his life, when he's in prison and about to be executed. And he writes a letter, we believe the last of his life, to Timothy. 2 Timothy 4, verse 16. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed 
and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. You hear what he's saying? I'm going to get attacked and God's going to rescue me from every one of them and he's going to take me home. Paul never says that I'm not going to die in this effort. God's going to rescue me. I may die, he's telling Timothy, but no harm will come to me. How many people live with that perspective? That you are so in tune with what God is doing that you realize they can do whatever they want to this body, but they can't touch me. I may come under strict attack, but no harm will come to me. God's going to see me safely home. Wow. But there's another reason this is significant and why it's here. God used this ruling to protect the preaching of the gospel. You see, in an official court of the province of Achaia, formal charges are brought declaring that the preaching of the gospel is illegal under Roman law. If that had stood, it would have set a precedent in all the other Roman provinces. It would have become illegal for Paul or anybody else to preach in the name of Jesus. Gallio threw that out, declaring that the preaching of the gospel is a protected religion along with the others. And he will not judge it. He will not bring Rome into it. He made the preaching of the gospel legal in the Roman Empire. And protected under Roman law. Ten years later in 60 AD, that ruling will get overturned. But for the next decade, Paul is free to preach the gospel because of a ruling that took place where God intervened and said, no harm is going to come to you. Amazing. The Jews didn't like the response. And so they grabbed Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and they start beating him up right in front of the proconsul. And the proconsul says, look, I'm not getting involved in this. Rome's not getting involved in this. This is your religious issue. You solve it. And by the way, this Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, who was probably the replacement for Crispus, who became a Christian, this Sosthenes that got beat up is mentioned by Paul when he writes back in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 1, Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. If this is the same Sosthenes, and it's highly likely that it is, this guy that got beat up that night got saved and became a leader at the church at Corinth that was meeting at Titius Justice's house. See, you and I are sent by the same God with the same powerful message of salvation of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. When we are opposed, we should understand what's happening. Charles Spurgeon used to say, Satan never kicks a dead horse. The reason there is opposition to the gospel is that the gospel is true and it's powerful. Otherwise, Satan would have no reason to oppose it. So when you meet opposition, Paul learned, I'm not going to give up. God sent me to do this. The opposition is the sign that I'm doing what God sent me to do. And so he was encouraged. 
Not only keeping us strong in the face of opposition, but when we know we are sent by God to proclaim the gospel, it keeps us focused on doing the will of God no matter what. It says in verse 18, Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Centria because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem, greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Focused on the will of God. Now, I was reading a piece from Ken Wisdom's book, Pursuing Justice, in which he was telling about a friend of his who, for the last 15 years, has been working to help some of the most vulnerable people in the world. This is what he wrote. He said, my friend was born and raised in what is one of the most war-torn regions on the globe today, Eastern Congo. His life is regularly threatened, and he faces the seemingly impossible task of trying to restore villages decimated by rape and murder and plunder. Fifteen years he's been doing this. Some visiting executives from a large, well-known global relief organization toured the region. They noticed what an effective job my friend was doing, and they offered him a position as the leader of their Congo operations. He quickly turned them down. On paper, it was the kind of offer you can't refuse. Higher pay, more security, greater influence, a dream promotion for most Westerners. But my friend refused for a very simple reason. This is what he told them. God gave me the job I have. He helped me build the relationships and the respect that I have. He has opened the door for me all these years and kept me safe on every trip out into the bush. I'm right where God has called me to be. So why would I want to go anywhere else? I don't just want to do good. I want to be where God wants me to be. This is the same focus that will drive Paul's life for the rest of his ministry. Paul knew he was sent not to do his will, but to do God's will. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time, verse 18. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila, before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Centria because of a vow he had taken. Paul stays in Corinth for 18 months preaching the gospel with a church well-established at the home of Tedius Justice. He, along with Priscilla and Aquila, set sail for his home church back in Antioch in Syria. He's coming back to report, as he said he would, about how God had used them in sending him out. The very same thing our kids are doing tomorrow night 
in the global outreach room. They're coming back to report on what God has done to those who sent them. So on the way, he cuts off his hair in fulfillment of a vow, most likely a Nazarite vow that he had taken. You can read all about it in number six in the Old Testament. A Nazarite vow was taken when a person wanted to commit themselves to God in consecration for something very special that God had asked them to do. During that vow, they would drink no wine and they would not cut their hair. When the vow was fulfilled, they were required to cut their hair, as Paul did, and they were required to bring that hair as an offering and present that hair as an offering to God at the temple in Jerusalem, which probably explains why Paul made such a brief side trip after he gets back. Instead of going directly north to his home church, he makes a side trip out of the way to Jerusalem, probably to present that hair and to encourage the church. And then he travels 300 miles north to Antioch. But on their way to Syria, setting sail from Corinth, they stop in Ephesus, where he goes to the synagogue and he begins preaching. And it says, they arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. First time I read that, I thought, what? He declined? Every synagogue he's been in, they're chasing him out with sticks. Now he goes to one, and they're saying, hey, would you stick around and tell us some more? And Paul says, nah. I'm thinking, what's, <laughs> what's going on with this? But, verse 21, as he left, he promised, I will come back if it's God's will. You see, Paul understood that God had called him to go back. Later on in the book of Acts, you're going to see why. But he goes back to Caesarea, makes a side trip to Jerusalem, and then he heads up to Antioch. He leaves Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus. They become instrumental in helping that church. You see, Paul understood that when you become a Christian... It doesn't matter so much anymore what you want. What matters is what God wants. So even though the Jews were begging him to stay, he said, you know what? God doesn't want me here right now. If it's his will, I'll come back. But if not, I won't. But right now, it's not. So I'm leaving. I'd love to stay. The door is open. But that's not what God wants for me now. Paul shared with the Galatian churches after he goes to Antioch, we're going to learn in the latter part of Acts 18 and Acts 19 next week, Lord willing, we're going to learn that Paul went back out. He ends up back in Ephesus. But when he went through the provinces of Galatia, he shared this message from Galatians 2.20. This is the perspective every Christian needs. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul tells the Galatian churches as he's traveling back, I don't live anymore. I forfeited my life to Jesus when I asked him to save me. So now, 
I don't live to get my will done. I live to get God's will done. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So if I'm a Christian and Jesus lives in me, then what can I expect to become the focus of my life? The same focus Jesus always lived with. Doing the will of God. Do you remember in John chapter 4, the story of the lady at the well in Samaria? Jesus comes and meets this woman from Samaria, Samaritan woman. And they, and, and they engage in a conversation that eventually leads her and the whole village to Christ. Well, Jesus, talking to this woman, sends the guys into town to get some food. And when they come back, it says in verse 31 of John 4, Meanwhile, his disciples urge him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat you know nothing about. And they're probably thinking, what? Then why in the world did you send us in to get food? Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? And Jesus said in verse 34, my food, Jesus said, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. My food, my strength, my sustenance, what drives me is doing the will of God. God sent me to do his will. I'm energized by doing that. It's my food. Finishing the work he gave me to do. And then what did he talk about next in John 4, verse 35? The harvest. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They're ripe for harvest. You guys are focused on this bag of cheeseburgers and french fries and I'm telling you God didn't send you here for this kind of food he sent you here to know the joy of reaching these people that are white for harvest there's so many people here that are ready to turn to God they just need to hear the gospel and God has sent us here to tell them God sent us here to tell them my will is to do the will of him who sent me do you remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he went to the cross, Luke 22? My father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. If it's your will that I taste of this sin and become the sacrifice to save these people, then your will be done. You see, Paul said, I died and Christ lives in me. Jesus lived to do the will of God. It is inconceivable for a person to say they are a Christian and has Christ living in them and they do not increasingly desire to do the will of God over their own will. In fact, it's inconceivable that over time your will will not just be immersed in the will of God to do what he has asked you to do, to be what he's asked you to be. People, the truth is, it really doesn't matter anymore what I want to do with my future. It matters with what God wants to do with my future. It doesn't matter at all where I want to live. What matters is where God wants me to live. It doesn't matter what I want to have as a relationship with my neighbors. What matters is what God wants me to have in relationship with my neighbors. It doesn't really matter 
what you want to do at work. What really matters is what God wants you to do at work. It doesn't matter what I hope will be the future of this church. What matters is what God wants the future to be for this church. You can plug any scenario you want in there. We live to do not our will, but the will of him who sent us. In fact, it would guide Paul's ministry for the rest of his life. Take some time. I don't have time today to do what I was going to do, but just take some time to read through Paul's epistles. And look how many times he starts them out like this in these letters he writes back to these churches. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. Paul, an apostle, set not by man, but by God. I have been sent to be a messenger by the will of God, 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 by the will of God. After a while, you get an idea of what's controlling his life. Paul lived to do the will of God. Paul knew he had been sent to do that will. You and I have been sent for the same purpose. God's going to put us where he wants at the time he wants to do the work he wants. And when we know we're sent by God, it helps us to be focused on that will. And knowing that we're sent by God makes all the difference. I was reading a piece by Bill Hybels in his book, Simplify. He said, history is filled with men and women who, had, who said no to destructive fear and changed the world. But imagine if they had given in to the paralyzing effects of fear on their lives. Imagine the Apostle Paul, fearing resistance or rejection, choosing to stay home rather than embarking on the missionary journeys that's, that brought the message of Christ throughout the known world. Imagine if the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. refused to keep preaching a message that impacted America. Imagine if Rosa Parks had given in to fear and given up her seat to that white person. Imagine if Nelson Mandela refused to go to prison in his fight against apartheid. Imagine if Melala Yousafzai, that young girl you remember in 2012 who stood up against the Taliban and their restriction against girls going to school. She faced assassination attempts, multiple, multiple threats against her life. But her refusal to back down, believing she had been sent to do this, is what made people aware all over the world of the oppression of women in the Muslim world. Bill Hybels went on to say, imagine yourself fully aware of the mission and vision God has placed in your heart to advance his kingdom in this world, yet held hostage to phobias, irrational worries, destructive fears of failure, harm, or rejection. And then he asked, if you don't fulfill the mission God assigned to you, who will? The answer is no one. No one but God and me can fulfill what God has asked me to do. No one but God and you can fulfill what God has asked you to do. With your family, your neighbors, your friends, 
your work associates where you live. God said, I'm sending you out. Don't be afraid and don't be silent. Knowing this gives assurance. We can stay strong even in the face of opposition. God's with us. And it can keep us focused on doing the will of God that he sent us to do. As we're going to see next week, Lord willing, God is going to send Paul back out. He's going to come to Ephesus. (coughs) Excuse me. And God, through that visit to Ephesus, is going to set in motion a series of events that will bring the gospel to Asia, to Europe, and to the New World, to you and me. A series of events that leads us right back to the fact that you and I are sent by the same God with the same message for the same purpose. We are sent by God himself. And knowing that makes all the difference in how we live. God, I want to thank you for this reminder. This is powerful stuff here in the book of Acts. This is our history. This is how it was lived out. This is the word you gave to encourage. And I'm praying, God, to thank you for a congregation of people who every day have opportunities, just like me, to realize that we are sent by God with a message of the gospel, to proclaim that message faithfully, without fear in the face of any opposition, and to realize that no matter what, it isn't what we want, it's what you want in the end. So you take us where you will, plant us where you must, Give us voice to proclaim this message and help us to remember the whole time we are sent by God and we will never be alone. Thank you, God, for that encouragement. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.